You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Sue Gordon, who was until recently the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, a position she began in August of 2017. Part of that, she was the Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency from 2015 to 2017. And before this, she served for 27 years at the CIA, rising to senior executive positions in each of the agencies at that time, four directorates, operations analysis, science and technology, and support. During her time at CIA, Sue served as the director of the Office of Advanced Analytic Tools, director of special activities and the director of science and technology, director for support, and ultimately in concurrent roles as director of the Information Operations Center and the CIA director senior advisor on cyber. And somehow she found time to raise kids and to marry the commissioner of the Gotham City Police <laughs> Department. So welcome, Sue. Uh, thank you for joining us here on SpyCast. We've been wanting to have you for a long time, so we truly appreciate you taking the time. I'm delighted. So Man, I wanna... I've had a great career. You, like, uh, yeah, there's like a lot how there. How in the world did I lock into all that? That's craziness. And you're not 97 years old, which, yeah. you know, that kind of resume, <laughs> you'd think you'd be coming in here with a cane. Um, let me talk about the, kind of the origin story, the superhero origin story to keep with the theme of Sue Gordon, because unlike a lot of the people we've talked to here before who have risen to the senior ranks, who were political science majors or who knew in junior high they loved traveling the world and want to learn more about the Middle East, you have a zoology degree and you are the power forward and captain of the Duke women's basketball team. That doesn't necessarily translate to immediately going into the CIA, which you did upon graduation. So what, what drew you to the agency, in, in, I won't date you, but at a time in which it wasn't necessarily the high point of the agency's existence, the time where they're going through some turmoil, you know, with Stanfield Turner and others, what drew you to CIA as a job opportunity? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I love origin stories, so way to go. Um, so first thing, uh, I'm uh, the third child of a career naval officer. Um, and so, you know, we are who we began as. And so there's a piece of me that's just about public service, right? My, my parents gave me two um, pieces of advice. One was always do your best and two, give something to the cause. So I think 
first things first, I was predisposed to want to be of service. Second, um, my dad's bestie in the Navy uh, was Stan Turner. Okay. Um, well, how's that going to help the cause? So, well, I and I've known this forever. I mean, we, uh, he and my dad were uh, part of McNamara's systems analysis staff uh, back in the 60s. So we'd known the Turners forever. Um, and and up until even when I was in college, Stan would come over and, and play tennis with my dad. And so he was a part of our life. I don't think I really processed him as the director of CIA, and he wasn't involved in me becoming the CIA, but the backdrop. Um, I just joined the CIA because I couldn't decide whether I was going to be a lawyer or whether I was going to get my PhD or in zoology. And I thought, well, if that's your... <laughs> if, if that's what you're deciding between, you probably need to go get a job to figure it out. Um, and CIA was recruiting on campus, and, and I thought, oh, CIA, Stan Turner, that'd be a good thing to do. Right. And I got the job, and I really thought I would just do what many people do, get a job and figure myself out. And it just took, and there were things about the agency that just were right for me. Um, it's about action. It's about purpose. Uh, something about intelligence really satisfied my fundamental curiosity that actually is make, makes sense when you think of a zoologist. A zoo you know, when you're in life sciences, no one really knows. We're just all trying to figure it out. Right. So there's, there's some symmetry there. So, yeah, I just came to get a job. And then, and I didn't even get the job I was hired for. I was, I was hired to be an analyst of Soviet biological Warfare. So you didn't need to date me. I just did Soviet. Um, and you're right about the timing. It was right at the time that Stan Turner um, riffed a bunch mm -hmm. of people. And so my job went away. So I, when I got there, I'm 21 years old. I look 12. I'm all excited with my shiny new security clearance. And I walk in there and say, I have 30 days to find work. You really say you look 12. You, you were, you're six feet tall. <laughs> and you had just finished being the power forward on the Duke basketball team. Did did you okay, start at six feet? That yeah. was awesome. Did you start in an intramural basketball league that you dominated at CIA with the ball? Did analyst nerds? We did. A, we did. We did. I still. Uh, we did have a, a women's basketball team, and we did dominate all the analytic nerds. That's true. I'd forgotten that. Uh, yeah. No. Six feet. Um, my coach would have loved it. I might have been good if I was six feet tall. I'm tall enough. Uh, but no, I was uh, I was young and naive, and and uh, so they gave me a little bit of time to find a job, and I did. And you know the the career you just mentioned, um, I, actually Jenny Rometty, the the president of IBM, once said, "How in the world did you succeed? Like a degree in zoology in this?" I, and and she didn't mean it. I think as awful as I it just sounds when I said it. What I said is, think about what that means from the organization. I mean, think about an organization that would let someone's ability dictate their success more than their pedigree. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because your right. first job at CIA was as an analyst in the Office of Scientific and Weapons Research yeah. and looking at, I believe, Soviet missile yep. and space programs. Yep. I, you, obviously, you didn't learn this at Duke, right, in your zoology degree. <laughs> um, and I would imagine that you mentioned this was Soviet-focused. So... This is tough. I mean, there's a lot of on-the-job training, I would assume, that you were getting when you arrived at Langley. And this had to be kind of learning as you go. Yeah, so truth in advertising, my ZO degree was in biomechanics. So it was really the physics and engineering of living systems. So I, I, I had the same 
um, undergraduate education that that a mechanical engineer or a physicist might have. They just the, all the mechanical engineers and physicists listening just dropped over yes. dead like, <laughs> like hell you did. The fact uh, that you compared mechanical engineers to physicists made yeah, them all yeah. drop over dead. <laughs> um, so I had good science and math, and and truthfully, the first job wasn't massively demanding. It just required. Um, you know, a little bit of knowledge of of how um, characteristics of performance translate into overall outcome. Where it really got interested was in my second job when I became an analyst of uh, communications satellites. And that one, um, upon getting it, I had immediate buyer's remorse. I'm like, oh my God, what have I just done? And I went to my boss and I'm like, are you sure you hired the right person? And he yelled at me, he said, who do you think you are? judging whether I hired the right person. And I thought, well, that's adorable, but I better go learn something. So I went to some of our private sector partners, mm. and I said, will you teach me about communications and communication satellites? Uh, and they did. And if we talked later about one of the reasons why I'm so into public-private right. partnership is from my very earliest days, uh, the patriotism and willingness of our industrial partners to partner with us and to give to us even when there's nothing in it. So uh, Dave Henson, I still remember his name. I hope he's listened to this at some point, was an ESL engineer who took time from his day to just teach this kid who knew undergraduate calculus and a little bit about physics, about how to think about satellites. So uh, for anyone who's listening, the cool thing is you're not stuck with the knowledge you have. Right. Unless you have an English major or a philosophy major, and then you're, then yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay, we can we, yes. <laughs> we can talk about choices later. Right. Well, let me ask you a big picture question, and yeah. I think that this is interesting. You know, when you look at your career, you went from the Soviet Union as the main adversary, mm -hmm. and that was for less than a little less than a decade of your career, to looking at asymmetrical threats in the mm -hmm. 1990s, because you did work counterproliferation for mm -hmm. a time to the war on terror and mm -hmm. coin theory and great and now we're back to great power adversaries mm -hmm. at the very end of your career where mm -hmm. you're talking about china and russia mm -hmm. and north korea and iran popping back up I, was this an was this obvious to you as you went through as this shifted as the mission parameters changed over time was this something that you're like okay now we're shifting our, our way of thinking or was this something that you just kind of did like you did every other day at the job is kind of adapt to whatever's in front of you I think I've always had my head up. Uh, I think I've always, and I and I don't mean that in a career positioning way, but you know, work really hard at the thing you're doing, but then try and figure out what the heck does it mean and where is it going. Um, it doesn't mean I predicted it, but I I do think that the change for me always was an opportunity to say, okay, what does that mean now, and what does that mean now. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. Certainly what I saw was, you know, a, a Cold War Soviet dominant where I saw us develop some of the most eye-watering capabilities that were designed to go after information that governments held. We were the only ones that had that information and the people who were serving were really the warfighters and the policymakers. I mean, those were the people who were really informed. 
And then I got to see the global war on terror where now the individuals hold the information. Those systems that we had collecting information about governments were not the ones that were going to work. And you really see us, the rise of our cyber and communications capability, mm -hmm. because not because we necessarily saw it coming, but because that's where it was. And one of the things that I think intelligence is really good at it is it's unbiased, right? Whatever is is where we must be. Right. Um, so I saw that come. And now we're in a third one where I think the threats are to and through information. And if we had to change our theory of collection and who our customers were from Cold War to Global War on Terror, because Global War on Terror wasn't just the policymakers and the warfighters. Well, now it was state and local because that's where the threats were manifest. And now it wasn't just our Five Eyes partners. It was actually all the people. And so we really got more expansive. Well, now look at the world where the threats are two and three information and the boundaries mean that, oh man, I really got to work with the private sector. Mm -hmm. And the populace is directly involved. And because we're so digitally connected, the notion of partnership is even more expansive. So I think we've done all those things. And I think I've, I've seen the community respond to it. The one challenge I think we've had is a little bit of Kodak's problem when they were a first investor in digital, but they couldn't commit to it. I think, I think the challenge that I see us with now is, man, how do I do all of that? And is the world now more of the information-based threat? And can I give up some of the, the Soviet threat that I'm still holding right. on to? And I think that's the challenge. But I think I th I think the intelligence community is better at responding to those things than some because it is charged with not having an opinion about the goodness or badness, but rather dealing with what is. Is there a new problem? I, and I would argue that since 9/11, the intelligence community has been on the public's mind a lot more <laughs> than ever had before, and you see this manifest in different ways. Uh, certainly, you see it in the, the reaction of the intelligence agencies themselves going on Twitter and yeah. you know, being much more publicly facing. Right. I mean, in the last 20 years, we've seen the creation of things like the National Cryptologic Museum, right? right. Publicly facing from an agency that was no such agency back right. in the 1980s. And is this, obviously, we're, we're, the agencies are trying to use this to their benefit, to try to keep the public informed. But do you almost need to be a, does PR become even more important, almost as like a, a fifth wheel of the intelligence agencies because in a democracy, as they used to say back during the space race, no bucks, no Buck Rogers, meaning that if the, the Congress is not behind the intelligence community, you're not going to get the money that you need to do your job. And if the people aren't behind it, Congress yeah. is not going to react the same way. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any putting the genie back in the bottle about having a conversation with the American people. Um, I think there are two, one, just the world is so transparent. The world knows so much information. The world puts so many things together that that they're going. The world is having its own opinion, and you see it. And I think intelligence is not only just as important today as it's ever been, but projects as important. But it has to take account for there's a world that knows a whole bunch of stuff too. So how are you going to have the standing to say yes and? So one is just the world is more transparent. Um, the second thing is, I think, I think we can't underestimate uh, kind of the lesson we learned um, from Snowden. And just to put my marker down, 
there's nothing good about the choices that he made. They were for himself. They were not for goodness or anything like that. That said, we did learn lessons. And one of the lessons I think we learned was when it first came out, there were only one set of voices talking about what was happening, and we couldn't figure out how to talk about ourselves. So when we finally learned to get into the conversation, it was a little bit too late, but we learned that we have not, because we carry the American people's trust, we have an obligation to have a conversation right. with the American people. And, and so I think that transparency has paid remarkable dividends um, as we've moved through some of the electronic age. Uh, so I don't think we're going back. Um, well, have we gone far enough? I mean, I, 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 uh, you look at um, the argument over the FISA warrants, uh -huh. you know, that the Republicans are bringing up now. Again, not to make this political, it just so happens. Uh -huh. They're the ones bringing this up. And, you know, it, very quickly everyone's, well, FISA, the FISA courts are a joke. They rubber stamp everything because they don't quite understand uh -huh. the process. And same thing with metadata, metadata uh -huh. collection, right? Metadata collections argued on both sides, and I don't think people really understand what the hell they're arguing. Is there a, a, a need that goes beyond what the IC has mm -hmm. done to maybe educate the American people about what some of these issues are without, you know, giving away secrets, obviously. But I think people would understand a lot more about the FISA court and be willing to trust in the FISA court if they understood the fact that when, you know, federal prosecutors or need a warrant there's a huge process that goes into it and yeah the rubber stamp myth is a myth it's not reality yeah. and it's so easy i mean edward snowden like you mentioned tweeted out several times right. like the FISA is a you know a right. rubber stamp and right. people believe that right yeah i think um and it's and it's so on the one level we're like, well, we we do have a conversation with the American people. We have oversight committees, and they have the ability to hear everything we do in uh, amazing detail. And we're not we were representative of the republic, and so they're the representatives. And so on the one hand, we're like, we are telling the American people everything. But I I just think I think we're learning how to talk more about it. And I think you're you're making a great point. Is what per what the American people, I think, are afraid of is because you know we're a revolutionary people. You know, I I think I'm I'm big about human geography and culture. Mm. You know, we're still fighting against the British, and I'll be damned if the government is going to have power over me. So that's kind of who we are. Um, and I think what they're afraid is is a government that is intrusive into their life in a negative way. Well, we're not. We're a nation of laws, and those laws protect us. And that's it's not the technology, it's not the bureaucracies, it's the nation of laws and the intelligence community pays attention to those. So I think explaining how their worst fears are not at all the way the system is, is, is a good thing. And I think we did some of that very well uh, with the most recent 702 reauthorization. I think we have to keep doing it and explain there are all those safeguards and it isn't cavalier. Um, and I think we have to have the conversation until uh, that trust gets reestablished. Right. Is there room in the public sphere for active agency heads? I mean, we've now seen a lot of formers, mm -hmm. the Michael Haydens of the world, the John Brennan's, mm -hmm. the Jim Clapper, and others. And yes, politics brought this out, but mm -hmm. they've also, when they've strayed off of the political conversation, provided extraordinarily right. interesting information right. to the public. And they had been hamstrung for such a long time because they were heads of agencies or yeah. others to be able to... Forget opinion, right? We don't want, just like the military, mm -hmm. we don't want our political leaders and our intelligence leaders making statements about Republicans or Democrats or anything like that. 
but they can make strong statements on foreign policy. Like, you know, they can make strong statements on how the intelligence community mm-hmm. works. Um, is there a place for that? Maybe it's through the ODNI. Yeah. Maybe you put someone in, 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 in as, an, as a director, uh, you know, of national intelligence that does give public briefings from time to time. Yeah, so I think I think I tried to do it. I think I think Dan did it some. I think I I know I know Paul Naxoni has done it. I, uh, Gina not as much. Um, so I think I think there is a place for it. But I also think this is one of the things that we as formers can can do. Um, um, I think it's an interesting question, and I've I've had this conversation before about do you give up that ability to help that dialogue if as a former you start having an opinion mm-hmm. on left or right and i and i think probably one of the things that's happened over time is the hyperpartisanship that we're experiencing now it when you speak you have to make sure that you don't put three words together that can be used for someone else's agenda and the national security community, and I think this is whether the intelligence community or the military, is so dogmatically responsible. You know, we just don't want to... Listen, our information itself steals decision space from our leaders. We don't want to be out there mm-hmm. confusing it. And the, just, I think, the environment where every word you utter gets used to prove some point makes them a little loathe. Um, but I think this is where formers can help, uh, and and time will damp out. I, let me ask you, you: You served in different levels, certainly within the agencies, under, I guess, by my count, well, from Carter through yep. Trump. How many is that? I six. Don't, I, I, it's it's at least well six. Yeah. Was it thirty nine to? F- well, it'll be seven then. Thirty nine to forty five is yeah, seven. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about presidents as consumers. Yeah. And you can you can kind of speak to this certainly in vague terms or broadly or much more specific if you've got good stories you want to tell. I, I'm wondering if there are any particular nuances about different consumers that you can maybe make broad generalizations or you can make, you know, this person was the best because X or just I enjoyed dealing with this president as a consumer because they were questioning. I mean, I, everyone has different ways and what viewpoints and we've certainly heard about them before, but... From yeah. your perspective, like what what did you think of as kind of the you know the first consumer? Yeah, so uh, because of my career, I probably didn't have as much direct interaction with every president uh, that I did with this one. Although I have done it periodically, um, I'll try this again because I'm brave. Um, I think that every president I've served has three things in common. Four. Uh, And this is true. Every president, without equivocation, um, has wanted to serve America. I mean, you see it. And it's the reason why every president cares about intelligence because they are looking for information to help them make good decisions for America. That doesn't mean that it's always easy. but, but that's one. Number two is every president is different. Um, you know, we redo the, the format of our presentations to the president based on the president. We have done this over time. One of the coolest things I'm sure, 
I don't know if you have a display on this. Do you have one on the PDB over time? No, we'd love to have one if you have any yeah. idea. But. Well, I, you know, that's that's the thing we hold most dear because that's the most, um, that's the relationship that we hold closest right. because we are privileged uh, to be in that conversation. But over time, what they would tell you is every president does it. Some presidents only wanted three points on a on a card. Right. Someone. Um, oh, I know. Obama was on an iPad, and he liked. Yeah, and he's a you know he's a he was a thinker and a reader. I mean, he was a comfortable president for us because he was like us, and like you know, oh my God, what a nerd! We can write for a nerd, and we can, and do those things, and it was comfortable for us. Um, every president has been vexed by us. Uh, we steal their decision space. Um, on on our best day and worst day, we bring information in that that matters, and it many times it is inconvenient. Uh, and in the moment, no president likes inconvenient information. Right. That, that doesn't mean. And then the third thing that's the same, or fourth thing that's the same, I lost track of my numbers, um, uh, is that many times they wish we could say things we can't. Right. Right. So when you talk about politicization, that's really the essence of politicization is you know that there is a policy that would really love to have something being true because, you know, it's much easier to say I had to do it than I decided to do it. Um, and so we've stood strong against that uh, forever. Um, some notable exceptions where we, we ran into trouble. But but this president and, and every previous, you know, has that moment. But that's not a scary moment. That's just you understand that moment. You just have to believe in your craft. I think what's interesting about... President Trump and I've said this before, and I and um, is I, I, you know, I'm a I'm a competitive person, so uh, I actually thought he was kind of a fun brief because he was just different and thought differently and was challenging differently, and he made you come with your socks up, um, and and he's a and he has a different context for his policy, and so he has a different context for how he he. The information he brings to it and how he thinks of information, and so I think he's a he's a challenging guy uh, because of all those things because of how much information is in the open. Um, but fundamentally, uh, probably his biggest difference is how economic he is in thinking, and it is a really economic world now, probably even more so mm -hmm. when it was political military. But you know, it's I, I don't know. It, it is yet another puzzle for someone who likes puzzles, right. and that is how do you get your information heard? Well, let me take the conversation in the other direction and talk about consumers downward. And one thing I found interesting about one of your former jobs at NGA uh, is that particularly geospatial intelligence versus some of the other ints, uh, that the consumer of intelligence is not necessarily a top-level policymaker. In many cases, it's the, the warfighter on the ground, Brigade commanders all the way down to, you know, E5 tank commanders. How does this dynamic kind of shape what you did? In essence, this is about intelligence flowing downward versus upward. Yeah, so I was really lucky to get the NGA job. So if you're if you spent your career at the CIA, man, it's awesome. And I did so many things that I never would have wanted to leave in my head because we were so complete and we're the Central Intelligence Agency and we have reach and my gosh, we're the pinnacle of all the universe, right? You, there's right. just kind of that. Man, when I went to NGA, three things happened. Number one is uh, it's in the Department of Defense, so you're feeling combat support. 
Right. The second is geospatial did go all the way to the warfighters. So some analytic products were mostly meant for policymakers mm -hmm. and up, but man, geospatial information, its greatest utility um, is off times down. And so you feel the pressure to deliver for them and you, and you design ways to get it there sometimes which are antithetical with your desire to do some processing or metadata. And the last thing is, is combat support and geospatial combination of the two are more open. And so for me, it was, a, in addition to learning about the department in ways that I had, in addition to learning about the urgency of intelligence all the way to the edge, which is, I think, really important now. And technologically, we can do more, much more of it. Um, but it was also started me thinking about the value of our information when it is openly available and the kind of problems it can solve. And so that kind of pushed me into the things that I care about now is public-private partnership, right. making information available to the decision makers who need it, who are not necessarily the ones who historically would have gotten classified information. Right. Well, that's the I want to go into that, and we'll talk about your time at CIA in a second. I'll actually keep, let's stay on the NGA theme. Okay. Because that, there's been an, an explosion lately right. of non-governmental geospatial intelligence, right. where you can get on websites run by companies and buy photos of North Korea, right? You know, it's some of the places that you would never be able to before because of the influx of commercial satellites, because of the sharing that's at the open source. Number one, how much does this benefit us as a country? And number two, how do we prevent the brain drain to these companies that, I mean, yeah. this was always a problem for CIA when you've got an NSA, where you've got basically right outside of the headquarters yeah. at Langley, you've got these contractors sitting there from Lockheed and Raytheon yeah, yeah. and everybody else paying three times as much. Yeah. Now you're seeing it now in the tech sector of intelligence yeah. where how do you keep somebody at NGA, even as a, a GS-15 step 10 when someone's saying, I'll pay you $500,000 yeah. a year to come work for me. Uh, so, man, I'll try and parse that. Uh, first thing, I, I think the explosion in commercial geospatial inspired Robert Cardillo to imagine a vision for NGA that was different from its past. Um, and that to me was the first agency that thought, ooh, this is a changed world, we're gonna have to be totally different. And so that that's awesome. And it's actually what all of us need to be, wait, us, them, whatever. What everyone needs to right, be doing is, to, now, yeah, whatever that is. Um, pronouns, I'm fluid with pronouns. Um, you know, so, so the first thing first is, it is a fact that fact is true for others, but especially for geospatial. So it's really cool that an agency is saying, man, how are we going to be different? And so you're starting to see some really interesting happenings with NRO now thinking about the inclusion of commercial data even differently than they have in the past. So that's number one. Uh, I love that under his leadership, we dealt with an explosive world. Uh, the second is, it is an interesting challenge because it used to be that in some of these disciplines, the best work was at the agencies. Now there is really good work going on, not only in the private sector, but at other agencies that used to have to depend on NGA. So, right. so NGA with DHS 
in hurricanes in 2013 would send people to DHS in order to help them with all the geospatial things. In the 1415, NGA made its product available openly, so that was awesome. In the 17 hurricanes, you call up NDHS and say, hey, do you need our help? And they're like, no, 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 we have our geospatial analysts, right? It's just, right. it's become a commodity. Um, and, and that's exciting because it says, well, what is then the special thing that NGA does? And one of those things is, um, uh, one, the craft of intelligence and how you put that together, and two, the foundations in our science because it's not always about the technology of GSS workforce. Um, I think we can't deny that there are people that not only will want to move or be lured to move, but it could actually be in their best interest to move and to swim in that world and then come back. So I think... But it could be the best interest of NGA, right? right to have people boomerang back right, into the agency right. later so on. So two things I would say. Number one is the national security tent is just getting bigger and bigger because there's so many things. So if a kid's coming out of school and they're in geospatial sciences... I'm not sure where I whether I care whether they come to NGA or whether they get into that uh, ecosystem they're going to serve it. I think it will drive changes in the personnel system that says we're going to have to, instead of people like me that have 40-year careers, you're going to move in and out, particularly if you have those disciplines. I, and I think that's probably true in terms of mathematicians and, and cyber folks as well. I think we'll have to change our personnel system, but at the foundation, isn't it awesome that there are cool, you know, it, it's fundamentally governmental service to take things that developed at the taxpayer's expense and now make them serve society differently. And that's just really cool. Let me ask you about another public-private partnership that's a little different. Uh, in 1998, while at CIA, you um, were very involved in the formation of NQTEL, mm -hmm. uh, which is a private nonprofit company. Yeah. Um, what works very closely with CIA, for lack of a better term, to come up with really cool new things, yep. right? Um, that that you know has been it's somewhat controversial to a degree that you have a private company that is doing almost exclusive business to CIA, um, but at the same time, innovation tends to come from that. What have you seen that as a success story? I mean, we're, oh, we're... yeah. So I see it a little differently from you, how you described it. So in 1998, we were having a trouble getting completely into the innovation engine of America. If you think about the arc of public-private partnership, it kind of goes from FFRDCs in the 50s and 60s where we attracted and held talent for our use. In the 60s and 70s, we had things like Skunk Works where big defense industrial contract would do things for us, but we owned the intellectual property. And then what you saw is the rise of Silicon Valley, and we weren't getting access to those right. people, and it was really cool. Um, and they weren't going to give up their intellectual property to us. So InQtel was really about how do we reach that part of the American innovation engine. Um, what? So I got the chance to think about what it should be, and what it really was was marrying of the best parts of both one the purpose in the pocket of the government in this case the cia which does have harder problems to solve and a little bit longer time horizons and 
the ideas that were coming out of Silicon Valley, unfortunately, some of whom were being judged too early by their commercial viability. And the idea of Incutel was, could we make capital available through this nonprofit corporation to ideas that would solve our problems but might not live to be commercially viable? And could we make them live to be commercially viable? Wait, and so the idea was yeah. commercial viability, right? So it wasn't give money. So it wasn't the CIA doing it. It was all decision-making by this nonprofit independent agency that doesn't have a CIA board member, doesn't. The only control was through a contract. Two companies to make them be successful, and then if they existed, we would buy their products and services, but so would other people. That's awesome. And for you to say, well, no, it's just a really cool idea. I think if you looked at it, I think the private sector has probably benefited even more than the intelligence community has because we still have a hard time with that whole transition valley of death. But there are some really cool things out there that have, you know, from the from the Palantirs to the Google Earth to the Topsy, which kind of turned into, you know, went the Twitter route. Um, some of the early players in um, AI. So I actually think it served its purpose of being that bridge of keeping new ideas around long enough that they could be commercially successful. And then in so doing, raise all boats because we didn't, we didn't know that. There's, there's no issue. I mean, again, I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm yeah. just trying to throw this It'll be fun. There, there's no issue of the federal government, in this case, the CIA, essentially picking winners in Silicon Valley. Oh, well, see, that was the thing. Of but, kind of going after, you know, giving money to particular companies that, you know, are, are more liable to give you what you want. It's not. Right? So, Incutel is a private entity with its own um, board of trustees, with its own CEO, and they make all the decisions. So interestingly enough, when I first was pitching it to Congress, they were like, what if it sucks? <laughs> what, if, what if it fails? And I said, well, if it fails, we'll just not contract with them the next year. I said, but the problem is going to be on the day that that they hit a winner that turns really successful, and you're going to raise that question. But the but the real issue is, Incutel is a separate entity that makes its own decisions, and the only control is that contract. But it isn't. But it isn't in deciding on winners and losers. Okay. Well, oh, with the exception of, would they help national security? Right. Right. So if you can't imagine that they're going to address a national security problem, but that's really different from being built. For the problem. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership, while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. 
Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let me transition to talking about the way, the, the reason for an NQTEL in the first place. Yeah. And that, that really looking back at science and technology at yeah. CIA. In the 50s, it was very easy for the S&T guys at the time. There would be um, a TSD or TSS to create the, the necessary technology for our human intelligence operators in the mm -hmm. field. That obviously changed pretty dramatically when you started needing more high-tech things, larger things. The CIA really is never, not necessarily ever seen as a scientific agency. It's not today NRO or NSA. Settle down. Are we? I was about to. I was going to throw you. This is a layup. I was going to throw you a layup. So let me ask you about the importance of scientific development in intelligence as whole. So you can kind of talk about it from the yeah. ODNI perspective, and then really kind of the kind of the double-edged sword of S and T. That the, the more science we have, the more technology. Obviously, the more tools that we have, yeah. but also the more tools we have to pay attention to in our adversary, because they are developing their own science and technology that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, so that's the rub, right? Um, we'll go from the back out. Is is intelligence really is about advantage, right? It's an advantage for decision makers, and and how do you provide advantage? Sometimes, sometimes it's because you know more can do different. Sometimes it's because you have a little bit of time advantage, um, and and I think I think S and T has always, always been an element of strategic advantage for nation states, right? And um, uh, early on, a uh, huge role in what we were able to do in order to provide that advantage, technological capability to go after information. I mean, fundamentally, if you think about our origins, we were the first people who could really see beyond the horizon, mm -hmm. right? Because we threw stuff up in the air that could actually see beyond the horizon, and that was massive advantage and that massive advantage stayed for a long time what's interesting is the space force is because now we don't have others are actually encroaching into that advantage and so it's contested so i think s&t will always because intelligence is about advantage s&t will be always be a part of that um, what's interesting is that science is fundamentally an open thing right you are good at science if you bring more ideas in there and so so that balance, I think, is ever more difficult to manage between those things that you want to do in the open because the foundation needs to exist and so in order to have it at all. And at what point do you need to stop being as open about it and lock it down so that you have advantage is, is an interesting one. I think, I think to go with my earlier theme on the trans, transition, I think we now have questions on what's advantage in, in the data world. Um, it's why it's so important that we look at artificial intelligence. It's because now advantage is gonna come through data. It's so important that as a nation we figure out how to have trusted communications because trusted communications is really important for free and open society. So there's some now when you look at advantage, you're gonna say, okay, those are gonna be the technologies you're gonna see the intelligence community in the US government, national security have to proffer. Absolutely. Did shift. I answer that? No, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and 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 so well that I'm going to shift off the topic. Okay. Um, 
because we 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 know a lot about operations side. We know a lot about the analysis or intelligence uh -huh. side. We talked about S and T. You are the director of support at CIA, and when this pops in my head, I, I somewhat condescendingly think of uh, this is the group that gets you plane tickets. Yeah. Uh, and make sure that you have what you need to go overseas. There's a whole lot more going on. And for the unlearned out there, and I'm, I'm probably one of, I know a little bit more, but not as much as I should, about the Directorate of Support. Can you give a, you know, your elevator pitch about why it's so important to how CIA runs? Uh, well, first, uh, truth in advertising. Love that job. Uh, you know, I was... I was I was on what you would would have called the mission side of the house for a long time, and then Dave Petraeus uh, came in to be director, and he asked me to be the director of support. Um, and uh, you know, I when my bosses asked me to do things, I give a cheery eye eye and move on. Um, I think he did it because he was an army officer and understood the importance of logistics, and I came to understand that too. So, support at the CIA at that time was um, all IT. We moved that out under me, but IT, uh, finance, logistics, security, facilities, um, support operations, uh, human resources. I mean, think about but that. And, and what I loved about it was it's massive. If you think about CIA's global footprint, it is all of that at range, done twice, at least. Once in the way you can see it, and once in the ways that you can't. So what I came to see was it was an incredibly um, complex problem, affected by professionals of incredible craft who had a culture of service. And so they had the ethos of the CIA, which was, I can do anything. But they had the service mentality that didn't, didn't need to be at the forefront. Um, just, just some of the finest, best people. Uh, some of the, there, there is no CIA at distance without the director to support. And you want to know what a leader is? A leader is a... 20-some-year-old GS-10 logistics officer who is able to build a base and a physical presence on red clay in less than a year. And they will then find themselves there not only having established it and being the support for the whole thing, but when the base chief is out of town, they're acting base chief. And when the comms go down, then they're asking commo. It, it's just really remarkable and I fell in love with it and what I tried to do with my time was to let have support officers know that they had craft that could influence decision making and my operators know that if they involved them up front they would make better decisions but man I love that job you know logistically you're the thing you're talking about with safe houses you're talking about cars Everything. you're talking about you know you look at any kind of kind of even spy pop culture, but also real world situations, half of what you're seeing is kind right. of logistical support. If you support. go into some place, it's a support officer that's leading. When, when we go into Afghanistan, 
right after 9-11, support goes into Afghanistan. I mean, it is, but it is also um, uh, the facilities that allow us to take a derecho and not lose any operations. I mean, there, it's, uh, you can see, I mean, if, right. if the, your audience could see me, I'm almost wistful about this job because of, like I say, the craft and the culture, really remarkable. Well, and, you know, no one's going to make a movie about them. You know, they're, just, they're, they're kind of doing it yeah. absolutely knowing that they're not going to get any praise for it. Yeah. yeah. Total badasses. Yeah. Well, let me, let, me, let me ask you about a little bit beyond that, about, you know, your role in diversity and inclusion at CIA, because this is something that uh, you certainly take seriously, not just at CIA, but within the IC as yeah. a whole. You, you take seriously, and I think that, um, you know, director of support or logistics used to be seen as kind of where you stuck the people, yeah. you know, who couldn't hack it as anything else. And I, I wonder why it's so important to you. And you told you did a, an interview with, I believe, NBC a couple of years ago uh, when you were still at CIA. Um, we told a story uh, about an assignment in the field that involved physical exertion and there was a suitcase. <laughs> Can you tell that? It's, it's so perfect. For the old world CIA, I want you to do compare it a little bit today. If you remember the story, it's, I it's, do, yeah. I do, and uh, I got in trouble for that because the guy I mentioned in the story called me up and said, "What the hell, Sue?" <laughs> um, so, man, this was uh, this was back in '83, um, where I don't know. And this is so one of the things I loved about the CIA is it's so egalitarian. Where if you can do it, you can do it. Um, and there was an operation uh, overseas that they were looking for uh, technical people to go do something cool. And I'm like, well, I'm technical. I can do something cool. And so they selected this team of four of us. It turned out to be three of my best friends and me to go do this. And it was in a remote location. And it was in reasonably physically demanding um, circumstance. We had to learn how to rock climb and so we could you know, repel and do things around buildings. And um, we we were on our final selection. It turned out I was the first woman that had ever done this. And we walk in the room and this guy who was very scary, very ops offers. I mean, he was terrifying. And he looks at me and he said, pick up that suitcase. And I'm like, what? And he said, pick up that suitcase. And I picked it up. And it was heavy, right? It was about 15 pounds. He said, can you carry that up 10 flights of stairs? And I said, can I breathe hard? And and I did, and I said, yeah, I can. And and then that was it. And I said, well, you can ask. I'm not gonna say his name yeah. this time. <laughs> you can ask my buddy. And he said, no, he's a guy. I'm like, what? Um, yeah, it was different. Uh, it, I, I, you know, again, I was. I, I consider myself lucky because I saw when I came into the CIA, in my office of 780, there were maybe two or three professional women. Um, and I don't know that I felt it, but it was certainly true. And the women role models were awesome and brilliant, but they were few, and they were not like me. They didn't. They weren't. They didn't have families, and they didn't have young kids. And so, from professional standpoint, it is. It was not unusual to have amazing women, but there weren't a lot of them, and they were different from you were. Well, it's the thing with work-life balance is something yeah. that women talk about in all careers. Right. You have to imagine at CIA, right. it's, that's on steroids. Right. You know, where at any moment you might be sent right. to go rock right. climb and repel. Right. 
And I think it's one of the truths and one of the real unfortunate things is to too often women are judged by what they don't do. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, she didn't go to X or Y and Z if she didn't do that, <laughs> notwithstanding that the system didn't choose her if she couldn't pick up the suitcase, um, rather than what they are. But I, I am really excited about what's going on now. If you look at the, even when I left the CIA, we were almost 50% on the senior, senior leadership time. And your numbers can often be deceiving um, in terms of you'll have good female population, but they'll be, when you look at where they are marbled, they're not like marbled. Like support, right? You know, right, they're not operations. Mar- right. They're not marbled. And even if they're in operations, um, they're in a different kind of job than the, than the uh, operators overseas. Now you're starting to see that equality. And what, what from the CIA right now is, what is it, of the, of the seven top positions? Um, six are held by by women, and I know that there are people that are like, ah, no, this is like this is like an awesome moment in our history. So, you know, if you've had my forty year career, you've been surprised that it's still an issue that women do things because you're like, really now forty years we've been doing it. But if ten years ago or five years ago it was okay that it was mostly men on a leadership team, when you can now have mostly women on a leadership team. You're like a minute away from it not mattering. Right. It's what's, so awesome. What's I'm extraordinary so to me as a historian is that when you have women in the leadership team, that means along the way right. there weren't things that blocked women from right. getting the next step. Women were able to get into middle management. Right. Women were able to get into upper management. Women were not blocked or not discouraged right. from staying in until right. the very end. And it, would you say I, I looked at that as starting kind of under Petraeus, but certainly under Brennan, Yeah. where sure. you have people, I think, Avril Haynes and Fran Moore right. and the ED and right. and then of course Haspel and her yeah. all the people around her. I want to ask you about operations though because and, the and just are, on this yeah. point, and one of the things that's awesome that I saw because I'm a pretty uh, equal opportunity diversity person. What I saw the coolest thing is when more women got into leadership position, what it lifted all boats because what it did is it challenged the notion that good leaders all looked the same. And then once you had women who were so obviously looked different, you would have guys who were different kinds of leaders who now were getting leadership positions. So the benefit of just saying, oh, my God, someone who looks really different can be just as effective has a really great organizational effect. Okay, you were going to say. No, looking at the numbers, and of course, they're still relatively classified, but you can get percentages Mm -hmm. of women in operations. It's Mm -hmm. still less than it's probably around 40%. Yeah, it's smaller. And as you mentioned, even within operations, there are some some more equal than others, right? Mm-hmm. To, to go back to Animal yeah. Farm. There are some yeah. that are case officers, recruiting officers. There are some people that are, you know, not doing that work. Is that kind of the next glass ceiling within CIA, within the whole IC, to kind of, that needs to be broken to, to ex- allow women to do the jobs that, I mean, women in SAD, Right, right. Uh, which for the special activities division, which is the paramilitary yeah. branch of CIA, there are a lot of guys named Andy, or that's not their real name, but they walk around. <laughs> I'm Andy. You're Andy. You know, this is Doug. There's not a lot of women in SAD, right? That is that is the next kind of glass ceiling. I mean, do do you see that this change in leadership may bring with it kind of the um, the end of this kind of apartheid within CIA? Yeah, I hate to say that it's generational. Well, I don't think it's just CIA, if you think about where uh, some disciplines draw from, 
Um, it's only recently that women were rangers. So mm -hmm. I, I think I think generationally it's moving that direction. You know, it wasn't too long ago that women in the military didn't have combat roles, and now they're right. in combat roles. So I think I think those things you're going to see moving along. Um, I'm really actually really proud. Two things: we are not where we still should be. Um, women still have a different experience. Um, too many women still feel like they are undervalued. You go into too many rooms um, at the mid-levels um, where um, it, it's not as balanced as you see at the top. So there's still distance to travel there. And again, I will tell, I just have to say that um, Making people choose between pursuing the job they love and being treated decent, decently can, can, has no place anywhere. So um, I think we've gotten so much better at that, um, but we still have distance to travel. Um, I, but I do think, I think, we're, I think we're on a path. Like I said, I think you're starting to see so many signs that we're not very far away from leadership at any level being available to anyone. I, I think we still have to continue to make sure that we haven't made artificial requirements for jobs that were put there because the predecessors were someone who could satisfy right. that requirement for a job. Well, let me ask you, you know, this, you were, you had to deal with the work-life balance issue. Yep. And you actually chose something that would today be considered somewhat controversial I guess is that you you left to raise kids I did and that is obviously a decision that didn't slow you down because you know you you got to the position that you're in now but is a perfect world where you don't have to do that is is a perfect world where um or is a perfect world where the men are expected to do that or you know what I'm saying like is there a is there a yeah. way to satisfy that work-life balance to where you can be a woman at CIA do the same career you would as if you were a man at CIA and still have a family and still do the things that the men have enjoyed now for 70 years. Yeah. Okay, so first things first. Uh, one of the things that got me was that no job I ever had was at that time conducive to an eight-hour workday. Or I'm half as smart, so I had to work twice as hard. You can choose which one of those things it is. Um, and the way I had chosen to prosecute my jobs and the jobs I took, um, there was a point at which I couldn't keep cheating time and I had to make a decision. Um, and there's no perfect time and there's no one thing. I did come back pretty committed to taking a hard look at what we were asking people to do. I mean, had we created artificially mm -hmm. jobs or had we set an artificial standard that I needed to see your face in order for me to think that you were doing it? I think it's still hard with overseas jobs. It's still hard with war zone jobs. Um, but, but I think we're getting better at that. I think what we're getting better at is reducing the artificial barriers. There are some truths. Um, and there are some jobs you can't take at certain times in your life. So I remember I came off a uh, being the executive assistant to the number three at the CIA, and she was pretty demanding. And so I was working from about five in the morning till about ten at night, and I had a, a nine and five-year-old at the time. And when I was leaving that job, I was asked to go down to the NSC as the national intelligence director. 
And I said, no, I can't. Right. right, because there's just no way I could do both those right. jobs. So I, I think the organization is trying to eliminate the artificial requirements that limit participation. But I think there will always be jobs that require things that you're going to have to make a personal choice at. What I want to make it so is that when someone makes that personal choice, it isn't viewed as weakness or you have now, right. you're, you're now not loyal if you've done that. It doesn't mean there won't be consequence, but you just don't want to be judged as though you don't care enough to not do that. Exactly. And I think we're getting better. Great. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but I want to ask you one last question and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, and this is kind of a big waxing philosophic question. You know, you don't, you don't necessarily need to answer this. There's no right answer to this. But is there anything you can point to that might redefine the mission of the IC in the next 10 to 20 years? We've had the global war on terror. You had yep. the end of the Cold War. You had Vietnam. We're kind of looking at these benchmarks that are about every 15, 20 years or so. Is there some feature threat you're most concerned about? Migration, climate, resources, rogue states, proliferation. What keeps Sue Gordon up at night, even though she doesn't have to worry about this stuff anymore? Well, I think I already mentioned one, and this is a world where the threats are two and three information. So if you're going to have advantage in that, we're going to have to really succeed in that. And I think that's going to require some really interesting work um, because, like I said, we're a nation of laws, and we have laws about privacy and laws about protection, and that crosses or uh, organizations and country boundaries and we're going to have to figure out how we both can use the world's information and be true to our values and so I think that's going to take a lot of time and I think it's a little bit of race because some of our adversaries and competitors do not feel the same limitations that free and open societies do and so you've got this tussle between oh my god if I didn't care about privacy I could just go nuts right I need to be able to use the data in order to have advantage. So I think that's going to dominate for a while. I think we are going to see, um, and staying out of uh, political controversy on climate change, but but talk about the geopolitical effects of climate change. I think you're going to see that. We've always known that it was part of the ecosystem of economic threats, um, uh, displaced persons, uh, water rights and those sorts of things. So I think that you're going to see the need for the analysis of that. You're going to start seeing the effects and then starting, you're going to want the national security apparatus to be looking at it and using some of the data. I am really hopeful about some of the, the new uh, sensing capabilities mm-hmm. that will help us be able to see that in ways that we couldn't see it before. But I think we've got a hands full of data for the foreseeable future. With so much now focus on technology, right. so much focus on data or Massent or SIGINT, is it now the time where we can perhaps gain an advantage of going back to old-fashioned human intelligence collection? Is, uh, is there now an advantage, because everyone has gone yeah. in the opposite direction, yeah. is there an advantage to be gained to going old school? I kind of think when the the Russians yeah. went back to typewriters after Snowden's revelations, they're like, look, we're going to go old school, even though typewriters can still be. Yeah, so I think, one, um, what's awesome about about Humant is that it goes after the most important, the, the most characteristic important element of understanding, future understanding is intent, mm-hmm. right? What are people intending to do, how they use it? And you can... And you see it play out in lots of ways. Um, And I think what you're going to see is 
redoubling of the importance of it, but it has to be merged with the technical side because human behavior affected in a digital environment is both more exposed and more elusive. And so I think you need it. I think you need the humans analytically. I think you need the critical thinking. I need, think you need the problem solving. But it does have to embrace technology because that technology can help give that di the same value in the past affected differently. Well, Sue Gordon looking well-rested, happy, wearing jeans, <laughs> not worrying about the job anymore. Uh, we really appreciate the time that you took today to talk to us. And we wish you the best of luck in moving into the future, whatever the hell you decide to do. Hey, keep on pressing on this one just differently. Awesome, Sue. Thank you so much. You bet. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.